Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's RA Edge webinar, Wealth Management M&A, Industry Influencers and Experts Reveal What is Driving Valuations Now. This webinar is sponsored by Blue Spring Wealth Partners. My name is David Lennick, and I'm the Senior Editor for WealthManagement.com, and I'll be your host today. Now, let me introduce today's speakers. First, we have David Cantor, the President of Blue Spring Wealth Partners. We also have Stuart Silverman, the Chairman of Blue Spring Wealth Partners. They're joined by David Abbott, the President of Cambridge International Partners, and Philip Palaveev, Chief Executive Officer of the Ensemble Practice. With that, let's get started. David, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, David. Thanks for the kind introductions. Thanks for having us today. A, a big thanks to WealthManagement.com for uh, you know giving this up, giving us this opportunity, and thanks to our uh, my my co-panelists, our speakers, um, David, Stuart, and Philip. We've got some great content that we think we can share with you today, but we want this to be interactive. So your questions are um, encouraged and sought at any time. I see we already actually have one from a seat and we'll get to that. But let me tell you a little bit about the flow of this presentation. I'm going to start with uh, some industry background, just what's happening in the wealth management um, profession, in more particularly the REA profession. Uh, and then I'm going to start to engage our panelists about what's the state of, of mergers and acquisitions, and really dig into the topic about what's driving um, valuations now. And I, I'm really excited because we have three personas joining us today. We've got David Abbott, who uh, plays the role of the banker, the very high-end investment banker serving the wealth management profession. We've got our good friend, Philip Palavev, who is a longtime consultant uh, to the wealth management space and runs um, the Ensemble Practice, uh, G2 Academy, um, and has written uh, two leading books. Before that, actually, he, you know, I, I think I first met him when he was a consultant at Moss Adams. And then my partner, uh, Stuart Silverman, who um, has played many roles before Blue Spring, uh, running a practice management platform, uh, but also serves uh, as our chairman today at Blue Spring, helping to guide and um, grow our platform, which you'll hear more about. So let's dig in. Uh, questions encouraged and excited to start this uh, journey together. So a snapshot of the industry. And this is data from uh, one of my favorite uh, collabs, the uh, Investment Advisor Association in partnership with National Regulatory Services. They do a scan of the profession every year. And what's really fascinating to me about the RAA profession is it continues to be a growing profession, not just the number of registrants, but the number of clients that are served by RAAs. The number of registrants actually has grown 6.7% uh, year over year, and it sits just about 15,000 SEC registered advisors. Uh, you can see that there are almost 65 million investors that are served by these advisors, and nearing a million associates serve this profession. So these numbers ref reflect growth. And if you talk to the folks that prepare this study, this has been a longitudinal story. So it's year-over-year year growth. And that's what has prompted me and others to say that there's really a bull market for advice because investors are flocking to these fee-only advisors um, that are serving all of them. So just a wonderful place to be. And it's driving a lot of what we're going to talk about in a moment. I always think it's it's important to sort of, you know, think when you think about the investment advisory profession, understand what the median firm looks like, and just a little bit of scope around the size and shape of these firms. So these are all small businesses for the, for the most part. 
you know, 88% of the advisors are small businesses and they employ fewer than 50 uh, associates. And it, in, in fact, most of these firms look after less than a billion dollars in assets. And the median firm, the median firm has eight employees, 412 million under management. And, you know, for the most part is looking after 100 to 150 households. Now, as you can see in this bar chart on, on the on the right, the firms that have a billion or more in assets uh, may make up most of the assets, uh, but in terms of the most of the advisors, it's really a billion dollars and below. And in fact, I'll I'll cite some Fidelity information. Fidelity has done some great work, and you know I think it's something like 872 RAs have a billion or more in assets that they look after, and this is wealth managers. And I think this is measured by the way uh, they mark their ADV to do some degree of financial planning. So it's a growing industry. There are, you know, 870 so-called unicorns that look after a billion or more. But the preponderance, in fact, the, the, the overwhelming majority of firms are, are smaller and, uh, you know, fit right into this median level. Uh, and, and thanks to Fidelity for that work. I know my good friend Scott Slater, who may be on the call, uh, has done some great work around tracking the M&A transactions in the space. Again, this is another slide that we borrowed heavily from Fidelity. Just This goes through uh, Q2 22. Just the activity in the space. So as of uh, the mid-year, there are about 119 transactions constituting about $161 billion uh, assets that traded hands. And these numbers are up year over year. So this has prompted me to say that not only is there a bull market for advice, but there's actually a bull market for uh, M&A transactions in the advisory space. And not to be left aside, uh, you know, the, the good reportage that Scott and team do also tracks some um, transactions in the independent broker-dealer space. And that's, that's an interesting um, world too, because you know, about $60 billion in assets traded, um, but only two, two deals happened. What I'd like to do is start to get in, into a, a dialogue with, with our panelists. So um, uh, if I could, I'd like to draw in uh, our, our good friend David Abbott. And David, my question to you to kick things off as the banker in this space is, you know, what have we seen in terms of uh, the M&A velocity of transactions? And, and what do you think the future holds for us? Yeah, thank you, David. And thank you, everyone, for being here today. Now, I'll start off by saying, you know, this chart that you see here absolutely shows what's been happening, which has just been an acceleration over the last couple of years uh, in the M&A space for REAs. It's been driven by the first piece is really founders of firms thinking about the transition of equity. How do we do it internally and can we accomplish it? With the, the stock market going up as long as it has, sort of peaking in the last you know, 12 months, that really drove to a lot of firms saying, you know what, this is a good time to do it. My firm's at peak valuation. So there was a lot of activity. But it has begun to slow down. As you see market volatility kick in, you typically see firms start to contemplate, is this the right time? Do I wait? Uh, but I think the fundamentals of the rationale of why firms are doing it are still there. As you said, the bull market for for transactions is still there as firms thinking about transition. How do we continue to do it from an ownership and leadership perspective? But then they're looking at all the additive things that they need for their clients. How do I continue to expand my usefulness for my clients, the services we're providing, the capabilities? How do we continue to add that to what we need as clients demand more? 
And a lot of firms don't have the the ability that the whether it be from a team perspective, from a cost perspective, to do that. So that continues to drive their interest. Um, but but activity still hot from what we look at four or five years ago. But it has slowed down from what I would say was the peak for the last uh, twelve months. So so David, if I can just um, uh, weave in some questions from uh, some some of the audience, and um, I'm going to paraphrase a little little bit, but I think one of the questions came from a seat. As you look at the future and the forecast, how will interest rates impact um, you know, the desire for some of these transactions? Will they or will they not? Or, or most of these transactions are funded you know, with um, cash and stock that are going to be, uh, they're not necessarily interest rate sensitive. Well, I think interest rates have, a, have a, a piece in it in that buyers have to pay attention to the cost of capital. So all buyers are going to continue to look at the cost of capital and have to contemplate that as they look at valuations. Um, so I think, you know, we, we've seen a slight decline in valuations of, for, for certain types of firms. I can get into the details if it makes sense. Uh, but we have seen a slight decline for some firms in, in valuation over the last nine months as, as interest rates have gone up and stock market has thrown in more volatility. Uh, so, so I think that'll play in that regard. I don't think it'll have a driver from, a, from the seller's perspective uh, because, it's going to, you know, as long as it's the stock market that drives their value from their growth, from, from half of their or part of their growth, and, and that's going to continue to drive from a stock market perspective, which, you know, how, how do interest rates affect that is going to be the question mark. And I think related to that, Paul, who's another audience member, asks, you know, how do black swan events, um, you know, including perhaps the war in Ukraine, you know, what's going on in Europe with some of the, you know, financial um, disruption, I think the UK market was cited does that have any chilling effect of investors, uh, you know, M&A going sort of silent? It, it does. And, and I'll, I'll throw it from a perspective of buyers. Uh, there, there are two types of buyers, ones who sort of do it professionally, continue to look for firms that are, are constantly doing that. And I think they will continue to look. Um, so some firms like Blue Spring and many others who, who as part of their business model are going to be acquiring will continue to do it. Firms who are looking at it from more of a one-off perspective are going to back away. They're going to be they're going to be focused more on their short term issues that are going on from these black swan events and from the market disruption than they are their medium and long term strategic planning. Uh, and, and to do M and A, it has to be part of your your long term and medium planning. You have to be focused on that. So I think there will be some disruption. We've seen it in the last nine months already uh, from certain types of buyers who are sort of one offs, make pulling away from the, their interest in making the acquisition. Yeah, well, and I think we're going to get into that in terms of. Your, your comment around strategic planning and not one-offs. I know that you know, that's something that my, my partner Stuart will talk about and what we look for. But why don't we, I'm going I'm to pivot for a minute and I'm going to go to Philip. And David, we're going to come back to you. So, you know, stay ready, stay alert. Um, you know, just like you're at the plate, I see some baseball jerseys there. You know, Philip, you have the unique lens of being a trusted advisor, a trusted consultant um, to some of the top REA firms, some of the, you know, more newer growing firms and some of their G2, you know, what's the dialogue you're having around mergers and acquisitions, around succession, and preparing firms for a transaction? Because many turn to you for advice, pre-transaction, and in fact, post-transaction during the implementation phase. So what words of wisdom, uh, my, my friend, can you share with us? I, you know, David, I, I don't know if I can be a source of wisdom, but I can certainly reflect on what I see in the industry. Uh, notice, first of all, notice that the universe of large advisory firms is, is rather finite. 
Um, there are only about a thousand or so firms that are billion dollars or more in assets and uh, assets under management. There are only two or three thousand firms that are more than half a billion in assets under management. Uh, so, so in many ways, if we talk about demand and supply, the, the you know old school forces of economics, uh, the Adam Smith kind of stuff, the supply of high quality advisory firms is actually not very significant and it's diminishing very rapidly. For quite some time, our industry has had the thesis that we're in the process of consolidating. And today, the effects of consolidation are very visible throughout the industry. When you look statistically at the list of the top 200 RAs in the country, more than 40% of them already have a private equity partner. They already work with institutional investors. In other words, they're not available for future transactions, or at least not without some further consolidation within, within the industry. So part of what's going to shape the future is the fact that some of the, if this was the Monopoly board, like, you know, how you play Monopoly in the early stages of the game, you just tend to acquire properties. A lot of the properties on the board have already been acquired. The sort of the supply of high quality firms to be acquired in the future is diminishing rapidly because most firms have entered into some kind of transaction. At the same time as well, statistically speaking, the typical advisory firm was started in 1992. Um, in our surveys, that has been the most common date the most common year in which an advisory firm was started, which means that today most advisory firms celebrate something like 25, 30 years of history, which also means that their founders are celebrating their 65th, maybe even their 70th birthday. Uh, Well-known well sort of demographic shift of ownership from the generation of advisors who started this independence movement to another generation, we'll call that G2, who are then taking the torch and carrying it further. And I have the privilege of working with many G2s, uh, 50 of them each and every year in our G2 Leadership Academy. And there, I can tell you that the industry is in great hands. Uh, I mean, I see a lot of actually the G2s from BlueSpring in that, in that institute as well. And BlueSpring is taking amazing care of actually sending their G2s to, to learn more about management and leader, leading people. Uh, you can tell that the young people in the industry are there. They're eager. Um, they're ready in many ways. They have a lot of ideas about taking over the, the firms that they have participated in growing. Um, but we just don't have enough of them. We don't have enough of them because the industry has grown so much. Um, it, it, first of all, replacing a founder is very difficult to begin with. Founders tend to have an oversized role in every business. But also our industry has grown tremendously. If we were just to reflect on what it looked like just 10 years ago, we firms were at half the size, even less than that. The number of clients, the amount of assets, the amount of revenues and profits generated has grown tremendously. So growth has created enormous demand for people. We don't have enough of them. And also the increasing valuations have made it more and more difficult for G2s to acquire ownership in their firms. They have the appetite to acquire and they were very eager to buy, but they were eager to buy at six, seven, eight times EBITDA. And now that valuations are 9, 10, 11, 12, and David will tell us how high they go, um, G2s are finding it more difficult to acquire. They're finding it more difficult to buy their seat at the ownership table. So these kind of forces are, are pushing and pulling at the same time. On one hand, we're growing. We're very successful as advisory firms. We're getting ready for the future. We're trying to prepare and train our future leaders but at the same time, our own success is making the treadmill faster and faster. So it's becoming more and more difficult for internal owners to actually take that seat at, seat at the table. Yeah, and Philip, when I, I flash back to this uh, slide about a snapshot of the industry. One one thing I'd point out, and you know, I'd love your views on. You, you mentioned that there's a shrinking supply, 
there's some, including myself, that would say that it's actually a self-renewing ecosystem because the number of registrants actually grew 6.7% year over year. And that's been about the median growth rate. If you talk to Karen Barr at the Investment Advisor Association, I don't know if Karen's on the line, but I sure hope she is. Um, so what's your, what are your views? Is this, in fact, is this a, you know, a, a diminishing ecosystem or is it what I call a self-renewing, expanding ecosystem? Well, you know, a healthy ecosystem is a renewal, renewing one. Um, otherwise, it will just deplete itself down to zero. And I'm certainly hoping that the independence movement doesn't just die out, uh, that we don't go back to banks and warehouses dominating everything and acquiring everything. That said, though, 30 years ago, one could probably start an advisory firm from scratch and have reasonable probability of success. Today, starting from scratch is very difficult. I actually work with a few young people that have been brave enough to start a practice from zero, from no clients, and just start a firm. And that has become very difficult to do. A lot of the clients already have an advisor. A lot of investors already work with someone that they trust to guide them through the various decisions that they have. So a lot of the market has already been taken. Advisory firms of all kinds, including warehouses, including banks, have incredibly high rates of retention of their clients, 97, 98, 99%. That's what makes this business so attractive to acquire. Um, the clients are very much loyal to their advisors. But that also means that winning a relationship from another advisor is very difficult. You're really only playing with 1% or 2% of the client base. So starting from scratch is much more difficult. The one place where we see still some influx of new advisory firms is firms actually departing from the large broker dealers and establishing themselves as independents. That's probably where we see some new firms coming into the picture. But at least my view is that this, this ecosystem will continue replenish to replenish itself by young people joining existing established advisory firms and building a career there. I think the number of firms that get started from scratch will actually probably start declining over time. But the number of young people that join an existing firm and build their career there will continue to, to replenish the industry with energy, with talent, with ideas, and of course, new, new professionals, more diverse set of professionals, and of course, more diverse set of, of clients as well. Got it. Got it. Well, thank you. Um, we'll have more to follow up on there, Philip. Um, uh, but I'm going to go to my good friend and colleague, Stuart Silverman here. And so, Stuart, taking the persona or the perspective of, of Blue Spring, a strategic acquirer in the space, you know, what are you, what are we, you know, seeing in terms of, you know, what firms, uh, what's, what's desiring, what is their desire? Um, and I know it's not a uniform answer when they're looking to enter into some type of relationship or transaction. A great question, David. Uh, thank you. Um, I'll just kind of build on what uh, what Philip said and what you asked about, which is what I would call the changing paradigm in the ecosystem, which is the fact that these businesses got so valuable that the next generation, as Philip says, the G2s, can't afford to buy these businesses. But what I would consider this to be is kind of a, a reinvention because we're seeing more and more, and we're focused on this next generation of advisors because I think we as an industry have done a terrible job of attracting that. I think 11% of the industry is 40 or under. 
But we focused on sort of a new model that we call the entrepreneur as opposed to the entrepreneur. And I'll get to your question, circle back in a second, but it's relevant to what where Philip was, which is an entrepreneur might not be able to afford to buy the business, but they certainly want to function like an entrepreneur. They want to manage the business. They want to share in the ups and downs. They want to share in the wins and the, and the equity or equity type incentives so that if they do well, it's like an entrepreneur. The only thing they don't go through is having to write the seven-figure check and take or take on the debt and maybe go through three or four years or two or three years of no income as those of us who started businesses can relate. But I think what... What they're looking for and what even firms looking to sell are looking for is more coaching on how do I identify, train, and develop that next generation of advisors? How do I teach them to fish, so to speak? Because founders notoriously just naturally know how to create new revenue opportunities and find new clients where it doesn't always come naturally to that next generation. So I think they're looking for that, but they're also looking for what we reference as a platform. In fact, I just came off of a two-day meeting where what we talked about is, you know, how do you build the ideal platform? And what a platform is, is creating leverage for and structure for financial advisors. So not every firm has to reinvent the wheel. A lot of the commonalities can come from a, a, from a bigger structure, a, a company that can provide that without taking that entrepreneurial flair away or that secret sauce that makes them who they are. But I think that the, I still think there's a lot of demand, in fact, more demand than we've seen in a long time for firms saying, I'd like to be part of something bigger. I think, A, I'd like to take some of my chips off the table, even though it's a, it's a scary market. If I could take some money out, but still have some equity to be an entrepreneur, that would be great. I'd like a partner who can help me with things like growth or creating more efficiency or marketing or operations or technology. And that's where I think some of these bigger players are coming in and saying, hey, we can provide that for you and take that kind of all those defensive things off your plate so you can focus on growth and, and on some of the strategies and the business consulting and, and whatnot that'll take you to the, new, next, to the new level. And I think what we're seeing, just to tie it back, is the G2s are thinking the same way. They're thinking, hey, I like this. I want to grow. I want to run a firm. I want to share in the upside. I want to be an entrepreneur. But I don't have to do some of the things that my, you know, my predecessor did. And I don't have to you know, re rewrite everything and redesign everything and reinvent the wheel because some of the wheel really works. Let me focus on the things that are going to infuse growth, help me take this to the next level, while first and foremost doing the right thing for my clients and making sure that I am, I am satisfying their needs for financial planning, for asset management, for them, for their grandkids, and for their great-grandkids. So it's a different kind of uh, – it's a shift we're seeing in the marketplace. Thanks, Stuart. Um, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the word G2 because Laura Delaney uh, has a question. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to first send it over to David Abbott, but then I think it needs to go to you, Stuart, um, which is, I'll, I'll, I'll read it verbatim because it's perfect. What options uh, for, are there for firms where, where the G2 is ready, but they cannot afford to buy into the firm? How does this differ for employees that are that are G2s versus family members that are G2s? Um, I guess they're both employees, but it's just whether they're a family member or not. So first, David, you know, you see this a lot in your practice. How do you sort of, you know, unpack this from an option standpoint? And then Stuart, I know this, you know, plays right into what you were talking about. You know, they, and, and, you know it's, it's what drives the majority of transactions, but I can't believe. You know, the, when you have firms that have a G2 behind G1, you, know, you have to transition a few things besides the ability to, to, to bring in clients and all that. It's transition leadership and transition equity. You know, if people are able to do leadership, that doesn't mean they're able to do the equity. So it becomes how do you how do you buy that? As Philip mentioned earlier, 
that the price gap you see there, Bob's is challenging. I mean, valuations have moved up pretty high. Uh, so, so how much of a discount is there going to be for an internal transaction? And is that even a price people are willing to pay uh, from an internal piece? And, and, and if so, where do they have the wherewithal to get it? Where do they get the capital? So what we find is you know, firms that are able to do it really need a G1 who are willing to sell or finance it most of the time. They have to be willing to really take the hook for the transition of the equity. They can subsidize some of it or, or, or do a seller financing piece of it to get it to the hands of G2. Oftentimes, when that doesn't happen, they have to look for a partner. Uh, they have to go to the market, which which then becomes the question of what type of partner do you look for? Someone who's going to you know take away the same type of opportunity G two has today, or a firm that can lead G two with an ownership type of feeling and upside from incentive, even though they may not be the same ownership and don't have the same capital at risk. The the difference I would say between an employee versus a family member is typically with the family member G2, you'll have the founder be more willing to do seller financing because it's in the family, uh, where they may not be willing to do it when it's outside of the family. So you have a little more flexibility from G1 uh, on trying to figure out how to get the equity in their hands uh, versus feeling like they've built something and they, they deserve some capital for it. Right. And there's probably some estate planning um, you know, considerations that can come into play from a different perspective if you're dealing with a family member. Absolutely. Stuart, uh, what would you add to that? And then, Philip, I'm going to camp on because I actually have, a, I want your perspective on this too. Well, before we launched Blue Spring, we spent the better part of 2018 interviewing hundreds of founders and G2s. And it was really an interesting aha moment for us because we wanted to sort of say, what's necessary? What's different in, in the industry? And we kind of saw this, this, this problem coming, which is these businesses become so valuable that the next generation can't afford them. Compound that now with higher interest rate, it gets even worse because you can't borrow the money. But again, the recurring revenue nature of this has made the gun this to a point where as much as when I grew up in the business, it was you build your business and you sell it to the next generation and then they take it over. Now, when I interviewed the next generation, they said, yeah, I don't want to sign a note. I can't find these. This business is worth millions and millions of dollars. I can't sign a note for that kind of debt. I can't afford to pay for it. And then, and I can't take that kind of risk. So a lot of them originally said, well, I'd like to be a, an owner. I would just like to buy it out of the cash flow, which is a great idea conceptually. The challenge is founders didn't like the idea because why would I let you buy my business out of my own cash flow? So that's where I think the industry is getting much more creative and saying, how do we think out of the box and solve for a G2 to say, All right, and we're seeing this with a lot of acquisitions we've made. I'd say half the firms we, we acquire have these issues with we want to tie the G2 in because they're the, they're the future of the business. They're the secret of success. So we want them to be incentivized. So a lot of owners are either maybe selling a small piece off to the G2s at a discount, maybe repositioning it. Companies like ours are getting creative with equity and phantom equity because we want them to be incentivized with what they do when they do take this over and grow it. But again, I think there's a lot of thinking out of the box. It's no longer, can I go to the bank and borrow the money or go to one of the big lenders in our space? It's how do I do this differently? But I think it's critical to think out of the box because these G2s are no different than we were. And I can talk as the old guy now. And no different than we were that we want to be entrepreneurs. We want to share in the upside. We want to take a little bit of risk by sharing the real upside of the game. If we do well and hit a home run, I want a piece of that home run and I want a piece of that ballpark. So we kind of work with our firms to make that happen. And I think not just us, I'm speaking for the industry as a whole. The question, though, that I think was asked that was really interesting on the what about the family, that becomes different. And as someone who grew up in a family business, it's, a, it's, a, it's even more of a question because 
a lot of families say, I wanted to bring my kids in, but then they realize the parents were counting on that business to retire from. And as much as they love the kids, that means they have to stay engaged for 10, 15, 20 years, or at least watch and micromanage G2s who might be their family members because their retirement depends on it. So we're seeing, again, thinking out of the box here, where some are just doing what you said, uh, what David Abbott said, which is they're getting creative. They're more willing to take back paper and if to a family member and, and, and whatnot. But we're also seeing minority acquisition, or I should say partial acquisitions, where uh, maybe an institutional buyer will come in and buy a piece of it, leave some of the equity in the hands of the kids. And that's kind of a creative solution to give them the best of both worlds, because they get a chunk, the, the founder gets a chunk of money in their hands. The G2 has equity ownership and maybe even buys it at a discount from mom and dad. And they also have coaching and professional, uh, professionally owned firms with a, with a structure, with a platform that can support them, coach them and help them. So the founders, mom and dad or whomever it is, can, can retire or slow down or do what they love to do without having to worry about their own financial security and knowing that the next gen is getting the kind of coaching, coaching and mentoring they need which is part of what Philip does, which is a good chance to hand this over to him in coaching G2s. He identified this. He wrote a great book about G2s because they're a different animal, a different breed. And I think working with them is critical. This is the future of our industry. And we need to make this a priority, the priority in my mind. Yep. Yep. So, uh, Philip, I have a quick question for you, but just for the just for our panelists, we got a lot of great questions. So, you know, let's uh, let's make sure we're we're, we're giving answers, but making room for others. So, Philip, you talked to us uh, in the prep that you often get calls from G2. Hey, I got an opportunity to buy in, but should I? So maybe you could recount the story you told us, but then, you know, respond a little bit to this uh, sort of round of inquiry. Yeah, you know, when I when I face this question, I always kind of remind myself that there's a reason why independent advisory firms exist and why they were so successful, especially in the presence of very large very capable, very well-branded, and very well-capitalized competitors, such as uh, the warehouses, because they're very large and very well-capitalized, such as the banks and such as the insurance companies. All of those are very well-capitalized, very well-established competitors. But somehow, independent advisory firms were very successful in actually building market share despite the presence of those firms. The reason for their success was fairly straightforward, at least to me. Um, They were what I would call owner-occupied. It's sort of in my neighborhood where I live, it's very close to the University of Washington. So about half the houses are rentals, half the houses are owner-occupied. You can walk down the street and you can immediately tell which houses are owner-occupied because just the front lawn looks a little bit different and the house is maintained a little bit different and just everything is a little more, given a little more love and a little more care. And I think that has been the strength and that has been the competitive advantage of the independent movement, independence movement. A little more love, a little more care. They are owner-occupied. And somehow we have to preserve that competitive advantage and continue to, to allocate a meaningful, that's the word you and I agreed on, David, the meaningful amount of the economic outcome has to continue going to the people who create it. In other words, the people who are advisors, who are technology experts, who are operations experts, who are leaders in, in the management of the firm, who are part of the investment department, these are the people who need to continue reaping a meaningful portion of the value that they create. And there are many ways of doing that. They're entrepreneurial in nature, but they're a different type of entrepreneurs, just like Stuart said. They may not start a business from scratch, but they're very eager to improve that business. They may not want to borrow a couple million in order to purchase equity, 
but they're very will, willing and very eager to devote their talent, their career, their time, their emotions to the business. In other words, they have the ownership mentality, even if they don't have necessarily the checkbooks necessary to buy the firm. So when somebody brings that question of, should I buy the firm? My first question is always, do you believe in your firm? Do you believe that your firm will be successful in the next 10, 15, 20 years in the industry? And if the answer is yes, by all means, you should consider it. And if you don't believe this this airplane can fly, please don't get on uh, because this will be a disaster for everyone involved. And then the second question, if is, if this is a good firm, do you believe this is a good firm for you? Can you see yourself spending the next 10, 15, 20 years in this firm? Because it's very possible it's a good firm. It's just not the right firm for you. I certainly once upon a time was part of a large accounting firm where it was an excellent firm. It just wasn't the right firm for me at that particular point in my career. But if it's the right firm and it's the right firm for your career and what you want to do for the next 15 to 20 years, by all means, you should consider buying. And if it's not the right firm for you, why buy equity in the wrong firm? Again, why drive, you know, why buy a car you don't want to drive? And then the third question is, can you afford it? So do you believe in it? Do you love it? Can you afford it? The third question is a difficult one. Um, Generally speaking, if you're going to stay in this firm for a long time and you believe in this firm and this firm grows well, the, the numbers tend to work. Now, valuations have gone up and spreadsheets have become more complicated. So the numbers working is still a big if. But again, to me, the first two questions are the most important ones. Do you love this firm? Do you believe in this firm? And if the answer is yes and yes, when there's a will, there's a way. It will work out somehow. I don't know exactly how. We are in a planning profession. We're in a profession where people love their spreadsheets. And I've seen people trying to forecast the next 50 years of financial performance. I don't believe in these kind of forecasts. I kind of tend to believe that, look, if it's a good strategy and there are good people involved in it, chances are it's going to end up well. I believe in investing that way. Stuart, you and I were partners that way uh, and it worked out pretty well for us as well. So I got to say, that's kind of the entrepreneurial spirit. If you want guarantees, there aren't any. But if you have the ownership mentality, the opportunity is still there. So my advice typically is, yes, you should probably buy if you can afford it, if you love it. Got it. Thanks, Phil. That's very valuable. And, and thanks for putting a framework around it. Um, because, you know, no answer, yes or no, um, you know, ends without considering a framework. Um, I'm going to quickly answer uh, Troy's question, which was around how many firms, you know, wealth management firms have a billion or more in assets, and then how many 500 million or more uh, in assets are there. And Fidelity did some great work, and I would, I would direct you to Fidelity. They actually list the firms um, by assets ordinarily. So by last count, there were 872, but I, I know my good friend Scott Slater's on the line. He could he could give you updated figures. 872 firms with a billion or more. So that's a precise number. And believe it or not, it's going to sound like that it's not true, but 1,500 firms with 500 million or more that are wealth management firms. But now I want to get into an area of questions that I'm going to start with David Abbott. Uh, there's a sort of multi-part question that we'll try to unpack. But David, how do sellers actually prepare themselves for... Um, a transaction. And I know you have a big part in that. But in the preparation, are there things that you're doing or that they're doing to, to think about life post a transaction? Yeah. No, and, and, and I'd say the first piece of that is really thinking of the term seller or not. Most of these firms don't have to sell. So I, I, take, a di- I take a tact of looking, working with them of saying, you're exploring to see if there's an option here. 
right? You don't, you're not forced to sell the firm. There's no requirement to sell the firm. It goes to Philip's question about someone loving their, their own firm. If you're out there talking to people, if you don't love the partners, if you don't think this is a great cultural fit to join and it's not going to help me strategically, helping my clients, helping my team, don't sell them now. So the first piece I would say is you don't have to be in the mindset of I'm selling. You have to be in the mindset of I'm trying to explore, is there a partner here in the market that's going to help me accomplish what I want that's better than being independent? And being independent may be the way you want to think about it. But again, you're transitioning equity, you're transitioning leadership. So those components that may not be possible. And can this partner help you with increasing your capabilities and your services for your clients? Can they help you? You know, increase what your 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 team has the opportunity to do, whether it's grow, whether it's other opportunities. So, so I say the first piece is don't think of it as seller when you're going to market. Thinking of I'm going to explore, see if there's a good partner here. But but when you think about what's going to happen afterwards, there will be change. I mean, there's no partner out there that won't have some change because whether you you know are a fully integrated partner or a partner who's just going to be there as a consultant, you're going to be talking to people that are outside of your entity. Uh, outside of the team you built, the, the firm, you know, I think you said average firm was eight, 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 eight people or 10 people, um, you know, 88% of them under 50 people. So now you all of a sudden are attached to something bigger and something different. So your life is going to change. Uh, it depends on the partner you choose on how much. Uh, some partners can have minimal change. Other partners are going to have substantial change. So again, it goes to the first piece of as you're exploring the marketplace, you know, you have to think about is this the right partner to help me accomplish my goals? And then what's going to change my life as part of that? Great perspective there. And, and very interesting that, you know, you make the point that, you know, you play the roles of consultant to see what can a partner do to help further your, your ambition versus deciding, you know, ipso facto that you're a seller. Stuart, let me turn to you because the next part of this question is, and, and you know, putting, putting David's good, good guidance into context, what can acquirers do um, that can make the post-deal dynamic more likely to succeed? So I, I'm interpreting that question as what can acquirers do up front before the deal to you know, increase the, the dynamic uh, upon any closing? A great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me quite that, that way. But um, yeah, I think that uh, to, to go back to, to David's comment and then to answer that question real quickly was I think that... Uh, one of the things that a really good banker does, and I put David in this category big time, is help buyers kind of look, or sellers, I mean, to kind of look and say, what's the right acquirer for me? What's the right partner? And I'm going to use the word partner because use the word fully integrated. And people who have never been through this process know what, not, might not know what that means. There are a bunch of different business models of acquirers. On one extreme, which for a lot of firms is great, there's a fully integrated partner, which means they'll take over everything and changes. You know, basically, you go see the clients, bring them in, and they'll do all the work behind the scenes, and you're using their name and their models and their system. It creates a lot of efficiency, and that's good for someone who says, I want to get out and have my G2s just kind of run this and have a model to go. On the other end of the spectrum is what we'll call more entrepreneurial models, which says, what got you here is your entrepreneurial secret sauce, and we want to take that and put it on steroids and make it even better, but take some defensive things off your plate. That tends to be our model, not the one's better than the other. So when we look at a firm and we say, how can we help make the transition smoother? We, we want to, in fact, we did a, web, we did a webinar on this recent, uh, about a year ago. We had three firms in that says, what, what does life look like after, uh, after a, a sale? And it basically said for firms on our end of the spectrum, not a lot. All the defensive things are taken off their plate. 
but they keep doing what they do well, whether it's the financial planning, the way they manage assets, the way they generate clients. We partner with them to help them grow, but that's, that's a different kind of model. But I think what the best thing firms can do, and we do a lot of this in due diligence, uh, in fact, we always label ourselves, we're more of a practice management consultancy firm that happens to be an acquirer than just a straight acquirer because we do a lot of coaching on the front end to say, hey, let's look at, are you a true ensemble? Do you have a G2 in place? Do you have a growth engine in place? What kind of you know, bench strength do you have? We want to, what does your P&L look like if you normalize it? So we'll do that kind of coaching up front so they have a good sense of what, if their business is a business, what they could do to create more value. Is this the right time to sell or not? And then if it's right, great. And if not, we, we're still coaching some firms that we think will buy two and three years from now, out from now, because they want to get all the pieces in place and sell the house when it's totally fixed up with a new kitchen and a new bathroom worth a lot more money. So I guess that, that's kind of our approach when we look at a business to try to help them maximize the value. And as someone who sold my business at the age of 50, I know that's what you want to do. You want to sell it when it's at the, you know, when it's, when it's worth a lot of money and when you still can maximize your earn Yep. All right. So we've got, we got some great questions here and uh, we, time is running short. So uh, we're entering what I'm going to call the lightning round. So this is going yes. to David uh, Abbott. Uh, this is from, I think it's from my good friend, Joe on the West coast. So thanks for tuning in. What factors, cultural, cultural uh, and so on define the best REA buyer or investor? Yeah, it's to, a quick answer is there's nothing specific that says the best. It, it comes down to number one, do the people, the selling team like the people on the other side of the table? Number one, number two, do they help you accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? If they're trying to help, if you're just trying to help them transition equity and, and do they have the right incentives for that team? Are they trying to help you with, you know, setting up your investment platform better? Are they trying to give you more services for your clients? Depending on what you're trying to accomplish on what's going to define the right piece. You know, if you, if you don't have a strong G2 in place, then the partner who's going to probably integrate you in because they have G2 already in place is probably a better partner than someone else. So it really comes down to what you're trying to accomplish to drive what the best partner is. And, and I'll add, the key to answer is five years after a deal, the question when says, is this a good deal? Both sides are going to talk about the partnership and working together. They're not going to be talking about anything else. It's not going to be the price. It's not going to be the dollars to change hand at closing or the earnout. It's going to be working together. Was this the right team? Am I glad I chose these people to partner with from both sides? Yep. Well said. And I'm going to stay with you because this next question is sort of on a similar theme, which is you know going to require some some caveats. But Alex writes, when is the best time to sell my practice? <laughs> I don't know that there's a best time. You know, part of the challenge is any buyer is going to want the team, the, the first team to stick around for several years, five, six years. So again, it depends what do you have behind you is next gen? What, what, are your, what are your needs from a personal perspective? When you have the optionality to start stepping back from, you know, the 10 hats you're wearing today um, and, and start passing them down with less risk because, again, you're taking something off the table. What I would say is what you don't want to do is get too late in the game. Get too too far down the road where G2 is frustrated that they haven't had an opportunity to buy in, where they feel they're getting dragged along to something they don't like. Um, you know, you want to make sure that they have the right incentive. You can bring them along the right structure and the right deal. But yet at the same time, you're willing to stick around for several years to make sure that this is successful for both sides. Thank you, David. All right, uh, Stern, I'm coming to you with two back-to-back, so be ready here. So this next question is uh, an interesting one. It's, can you talk, it's Blue Spring specific. 
Can you talk about the leadership and, and management influence that, um, that BlueSpring in particular provides to firms that it engages with, that it partners with? Yeah, I know this is the lightning round, so I'll be really quick. I think it's really, uh, our model is one of partnership. So as I said, we're more of a consulting firm that happens to acquire wealth, high-end boutique wealth management firms. So the leadership is really focused on whether it's technology consulting, marketing consulting, business consulting, operations consulting, investment management consulting. We don't come in and try to change things. We partner up and say, what do you do well? And let's really infuse it with even more of uh, help you grow it even more. And what do you want taken off your plate? But again, ours is, and maybe it's because of my background of, of being an entrepreneur. Ours is an entrepreneurial model that said that kind of when we designed it, when we built it out, I said, what would I want as an entrepreneur if I was selling my business to someone who has? I want someone who's going to let me fly, not tell me to wear a, a blue suit and a red tie and a white shirt, but let me be the entrepreneur or entrepreneur I am. But be a good partner and have a seat at the table and provide valid and, and, and quality advice without getting in the way and without mandating it. And that's kind of what I, I that's our, how we approach it. Got it. One more question for you, Stuart. Um, this is from David. What governance and shareholder involvement minimums would an investor like BlueSpring require? And I'm guessing that that might have, you know, percentage of investment, uh, but it may, might have other elements there too. So it's a pretty open-ended sure. question. But again, I'll, I'll recite it. Governance and shareholder involvement and minimums would an investor like BlueSpring require? Sure. I mean, our mandate when we first rolled this out, and we're one of the newer acquirers. I think we've, we, but no, I think we rolled this out July 1st, 2019. Six months later, we ran into this thing called COVID or nine months later, which was really interesting. But still, now we're at 29 firms. So we really have this, and it's really worked well in spite of COVID, which is great because it means that it's, our model has resonated. But our mandate, which remains today, is we need to buy at least a million dollars of earnings and at least 51% of a company. Over and above that, we're incredibly flexible. We're flexible in terms of no two offers or LOIs, letter of intent, look the same. We customize it based on the, the goals of the owner, the goals of the next gen. We meet with all of them and we put it together to say, what do you need? What do you want? What we're seeing, which is very different really quickly now, is that uh, when we first rolled this out, I thought we'd have a bunch of, uh, with the aging demographics of the space, a bunch of 60-year-olds like me looking to sell. What we're finding is a lot of the acquisitions we've made are in their early, late 40s, early 50s, even in their 30s, because they want to be part of a platform and something bigger. They think the industry is going to larger, more successful, full-service forms. But in terms of the mandate that we talk about, it's at least 51%. And a million dollars of of the uh, of of, uh, of earning of, of earnings that we can buy. That's very instructive, um, Philip. Uh, I want to I want to send some questions. I'm going to send this question over to you, which is around post deal integration and implementation. This seems like an area where you may be called on, and you know, I maybe even pre 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 uh, closing that you're there to help sort of think about how firms can integrate. So I'd love to get some of your perspectives on things that work well as firms prepare to uh, combine and, you know, some of the lessons learned over time. You know, I think I, adding on to what David and Stuart were discussing, probably it all begins with finding the right match. Um, you have to be very self-aware as an entrepreneur, as a business owner. And of course, in larger firms, that means that the entire ownership team, the entire executive team have to be very self-aware. What are we trying to achieve in this transaction? Uh, the best transactions are ones where the executive committee or the ownership team is very clear on what kind of partner do they need and what do they need from that partner. 
Are we seeking capital? Are we seeking scale? Are we seeking technology? Are we seeking access to resources? Are we seeking faster growth? When it's very clear what we're trying to achieve, it's easier to create a plan to achieve it. And then the second part is is working very collaboratively and also very self-aware and honestly with the acquirer to actually create the right transaction. Um, time and again, there's a tendency to sort of squeeze all the lemon out of the juice and the, all the juice out of the lemon and there's nothing left. Um, deals are created at very high valuations, utilizing all of the economics available in the firm, essentially prepaying for all improvements that can be made in the firm. If that's the case, then you have to be very self-aware as an entrepreneur, as an advisor, as a business owner, that you're putting a lot of pressure on your next three or four or five years to be very successful. Where I see a lot of integration issues are where the, the seller has sold a story of growth and a story of success, and it turns out suddenly the firm is not growing as rapidly as it should be. It's not as successful as it should be. The roof of the house is leaking. The furniture is not as new as it was advertised. And now we really have problems because, first of all, we don't have the capital to address those issues. We don't have the energy. We don't have the people. And we don't have the money to hire the people. And now integration problems arise. So as you're structuring a deal, be very careful taking on these earnouts and taking on earnouts that are very ambitious and perhaps are out of reach. Be very careful about capitalizing EBITDA that perhaps is not yours to capitalize, but perhaps is needed in order to retool and rehire. Be very careful when you choose your partner. If you choose a partner that you only ask for money, that you also don't suddenly decide that in addition to the money, you need some help marketing and some help staffing the firm. In other words, it, it all begins with choosing the right transaction and choosing the right partner. And if you have the right partner, it's a lot like in life. You know, when you have the right partner in life, you can kind of roll with the punches and things work out. And if you don't have the right partner, then you're in for a very long and a very boring car ride. And, and, and hopefully that, that never happens to you. Thanks, Philip. All right, okay. So we're going back to David Abbott. And this is a question about deal structure. Now, what are you seeing in terms of deal structure? And the question is, let's say now and then what's changed or changing. Percentage of consideration at close, the mix of cash and equity, as well as the earnout terms. And I know you're going to say that it, it's going to vary based on you know whoever you're working with. Maybe just give the audience some of you know what you're seeing now and what you think the future will hold. Yeah, and, and I'll even start. You know, a couple of years ago, you know, valuations have been moving up the last couple of years, and you know, you hear big numbers out there all the time. I hear people throwing huge numbers out there. Uh, you know, but what they're doing is basically taking the upfront valuation and the top multiple they could possibly get on their earnout, and they're saying that's my valuation. But it goes back to what Philip was saying is. A lot of times those earnouts have growth expectations that they'll never hit. So that's not the real multiple. Um, it's an upfront pick and piece and then an earnout. And that's the typical structure we've seen it shift to over the last couple of years, uh, where you know, depending on your growth rate on what you're going to have as far as you know a future uh, of the full earnout. So if you grow very slowly over the next five years, it's going to be 95% of your value is paid at close. If you're going to have substantial growth, it could be down to 60 or 70%. Uh, again, this if you sell 100% it is paid at closing. The change we're seeing it goes to for many sellers now because they are contemplating things. They're looking at the market and they're saying we still have the same needs are there. The reasons we're doing it, the drivers of the transition, the benefits of partnering with someone who had beneficial services are still there. So we want to. But the market has dropped our EBITDA. So our EBITDA has come down over the last nine months by you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 percent, whatever percentage it is. 
So we're seeing firms now structure deals where they're not selling 100% of their cash flow at closing. They're selling a, a percentage of it and then percentage of it later down the road where they can then get the rebound. So they don't feel they sold at the bottom. They sold at a time when they needed to sell. It's the right thing to do. But they're also able to participate in consideration later. So we're seeing some shifts in the way the valuations are getting or deals are getting structured in the percentage of the cash flow that are being sold. Here's what we're going to do. We have a little bit of time left. I'm just going to, I'm going to warn you, I'm giving you each, um, uh, it's going to be called player's choice. You can answer um, either what you think the future of, of M&A and valuations is in the space or uh, any key piece of advice or takeaway for our audience that you'd like to, that you'd like to impart. So that's why I call it player's choice. It's not dealer's choice. Uh, but before we do that, a couple couple announcements I want to make. One, um, we've got a couple questions around whether the slides will be available, and the answer is yes. RAEdgeWealthManagement.com will will send these to to uh, uh, the audience participants. But also, as we've been speaking, I just did want to share that uh, I'll, I'll mention his name again. Scott Slater shared some updated um, uh, stats, which I think the audience might find useful. That in fact, you know, the third quarter posted fifty two deals. Representing 64 uh, billion in assets traded, and that was in line with about a year ago. So, uh, at least the assets traded and the number of deals still remains um, strong. However, smaller transactions, those below the 500 million AUM level, uh, increased significantly according to, according to Fidelity's reporting. So, there's a lot of other good information that Scott, you know, sent me across the wire while we were speaking. Uh, I wish we had time to dig into it with our panelists. Uh, but maybe they'll put it in their player's choice answer. But I know that that, that information is available from Fidelity. So uh, let's get into player's choice. I'm going to start with David Abbott. Um, you know, what do you think the future holds? Or, you know, what piece of advice would you like to impart to our audience? Well, I, I think that going to continue being a lot of M&A in the market. You look at the number of firms that are out there and the solutions and don't always work to do something internally. Um, the, the advice I would suggest is you can't start too early if you're thinking about partnering with someone. Um, you take the mindset of exploring, not selling. You know, when you're selling, you're at the end and you have, you have one decision to make, which is I'm selling my firm. Uh, if you go out and explore, if you don't find the right partner, you can continue to work the way you do and make a decision five years later. Is this the right time to explore? So I would, I would, you know, wouldn't be too late. Uh, and I would take a very thoughtful approach to looking at partners. Excellent. Thank you. Let's go to Philip. You know, when I when I bought my house, and it's still the only house I've ever owned. I, I've, I've been living there for 20 years now. When I bought my house, um, I was very concerned about valuations. I was very concerned about the direction of the housing market. And I asked the real estate broker, like, what should I do to maximize the value of my house? And, and he's a friend of mine. And, and, and John said, listen, Philip, you know, make it a good home. Um, live well. Have a happy family. When the roof is leaking, fix it. When the garden needs mowing, you know, mow the grass. Uh, when the pipes need fixing, fix it. And and then whatever happens, it's going to be a good home. It's going to have good value. I think the same is true for advisory firms. You know, run a good advisory firm, make it profitable, make it grow, uh, hire good people, surround yourself with a team. And that will always have value. It will have value internally. And that's the most fundamental premise for value is it will have value to your partners. And we have, when it has value to your partners, it's going to have value to institutional investors as well. And the opposite is true. If it has no value to your partners, it's not going to have much value to institutional investors either. So run a good business, make it profitable, make it grow faster, and you always have a lot of value and you always be valuable to someone. Maybe your partners, maybe institutional investors, very likely combination of both. 
Well put. Stuart, you're batting cleanup here. You know, uh, your player's choice. Well, thanks for the player's choice. You notice none of us are saying what valuations are going to look like because we don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did. But uh, my, my, my common comment is this. Your business is your baby. You've spent your life building this business. But you have to, so I would say, recommend to anyone who's even considering selling, even if you're years ahead, what's most important to you? I mean, remember, first and foremost, this is a people business. You're getting in bed or marrying. It's like a marriage. You're partnering up with a firm or a partner, and you want to make sure that they have the same culture, the same values, the same integrity, the same trust. So I wouldn't tread into this lately. I've had friends who have sold businesses within three or four months are gone. They hate it. They don't like the new culture. They don't like the new owner. I've seen people in our space sell businesses, friends of mine, who said, I wish I didn't just go for the biggest check. Now, all that said, that's not my way of saying we're not going to write the biggest check. What I've seen is that the top three or four offers are going to be in the same range. So plus or minus a few dollars shouldn't make the difference. But the culture, the people, the dynamics should. And I'll kind of wrap it up with this. For us, we usually, when I meet a, when I meet a potential uh, potential person who might be thinking about selling their business or a partnership team, they usually say they're looking for four things. One, I want to get the top value for my business. I spent my life building it. I want to get top value. But the other three things are the things that really shine for me. Two, I want to make sure my clients are well taken care of. It's not a step backwards. I'm not just throwing them out. They're my friends. I care about them. I want to make sure they're taken care of. Three, I want to make sure my employees and G2s are well taken care of. And I love when firms start asking questions about what does this look like for them? Are they taking a step back? Are you trying to cut any? You're trying to cut their pay? You want to know that they're taken care of. They got you where you are. And the fourth thing, which always was critical to me because I sold my business 10 years ago uh, and still am working with the same company that bought us, the same holding company, is you want to make sure the legacy lives on. You made a lot of promises to the people you work with, to your friends, to your clients, or your clients became your friends. And that's really critical. So I go a lot deeper than just saying, who's going to write me the biggest check? Because that'll settle itself. It's the rest that becomes so critical and so important. Well, that was a that was a great way to close this out here, Stuart. I want to thank all of you, uh, Stuart, Philip, David, um, for taking the time to deliver, um, you know, expert advice, uh, thoughtful answers to uh, our community here. Uh, I, I think you all did a phenomenal job, and I thank you. I know the audience, thank you, but also again, thanks to the audience, thank you for tuning in. But again, these slides will be made available, and finally, thank you to wealthmanagement.com and uh, REA Edge for giving us this opportunity. I know all of us uh, are you know, available if you, if you have questions or need any follow-up from this call. Um, so you know, our information is available to you. But again, thank you and uh, have a great afternoon. 